Hi, I'm Andrew Sheps, and welcome to episode 51 of Andrew Talks to Awesome People. This is a special one, and it may not be the best suited for an audio-only podcast, but we're going to let you have it anyway. But I do recommend going on YouTube and watching the video, as there are some video tributes and a bunch of pictures. Uh, This episode is a tribute to the late Al Schmidt one of the greatest recording engineers who's ever lived, uh, more Grammys than anybody else on the planet, and all well-deserved, and an all-round really amazing guy. So here is the tribute we put together online for this week's episode of Andrew Talks to Awesome People. Hey, Al. Hey, Tim. So I have a question for you. When did you develop an interest in recording? Um... My first interest in recording was when I was eight years old. Do you want me to elaborate on that? Um, My uncle had a recording studio in New York City called Harry Smith Recording at 2 West 46th Street. And I would get on the subway from Brooklyn, uh, go over to his place on Saturday and spend the weekend with him. and we'd spend all day Saturday at the studio and he'd be recording or doing whatever. And then I would stay overnight with him and then come back home to my house on Sunday. He was my father's brother, so he was my uncle and he was also my godfather. And he didn't have any children, so I was kind of like his son. And uh, I would uh, go over there and just see all these amazing people, you know, from. Art Tatum to uh, Bing Crosby to uh, the Andrews sisters, to Kate Smith to uh, Orson Welles, you name it. You know, they were all there and, uh, you know, uh, Les Paul was his best friend, so uh, I saw Uncle Les almost every weekend. Uh, and he would have me clean patch cords, you know, they had the big patch cords in those days. I would clean the patch cords and uh, set up chairs and watch them record. So I was always interested in it. Uh, He always had a big wad of money. He was doing really well. He had a convertible, uh, brand new convertible car. He had an apartment on Riverside Drive uh, overlooking the river. Uh, He was very wealthy and, and we were very poor. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to be just like him. What was your last job you had before you became got into recording? I was a cryptonologist in the Navy. You were stationed in Washington? In Washington, D.C. at the uh, Naval Observatory was where we worked, and our barracks were on the Potomac River. Hi, everybody. It is Monday once again. And uh, tonight, I do not have one guest. I have many, many guests, but we're all here because of an absent guest. Um, As I'm sure you know, a week ago, we lost Al Schmidt, um, who is uh, even saying that he's the Washington on the Mount Rushmore of Engineers is an understatement. And on top of that, he was a really special friend to a lot of us and a mentor in so many ways. And so I'm honored to actually be hosting this evening of remembrance and celebration of Al. And I think the biggest thing for tonight is that we're here to remember all the joy that he brought us, not the sadness at losing him. And so I think that's what tonight is all about. Um, I'm going to be very awkwardly running OBS and Zoom while we do stuff. 
Um, but the first thing I want to mention is that for anyone who knew Al, he knew you know that one of his passions was animals. He loved animals and he loved saving animals. So first of all, if you want to do something in memory of Al, go to any animal shelter, adopt as many animals as will fit in your car and name them all Al. If you can't do that, then there are two charities that his wife Lisa has pointed out that you could donate to in Al's name or in your own name. It doesn't really matter, but giving them money will help. Uh, so the first one is the Wildlife Trusts, and I'm putting a link on the screen for you. Um, and that's going to run for about 20 seconds. And I don't really know much about them other than that they help animals. So you should definitely donate to that. And you can do that probably on your phone on the way to the animal shelter. And now we'll take that one off the screen. And the other one is called the Friends of Milo Foundation. Uh, these both benefit animals and absolutely one of Al's passions. Other than making records, which is obviously how most of us know him. And we've got a lot of people here uh, basically just to tell stories. But there is one thing at the very end, um, we were hoping to have some music, but because we're streaming on all of the social media platforms, playing copyrighted music will immediately get your video taken down. So over the next hour or so, while we're telling stories, if you could go and find on any audio service, or if you've got the CD or the vinyl or the cylinder, whatever it is, of Unforgettable, the uh, Natalie Cole, Nat King Cole, if you could cue that up, we'll let you know when to play it. So, enough of that. Um, what we'd like to start with is there is a group called the Meta Alliance, which uh, I was a founding member of, and it is a group of incredibly good friends, but also audio professionals, and I'm going to read you their, um, their mission statement and then show you a short video. So, the Meta Alliance is a strategic union of music producers and engineers dedicated to the highest standards of audio and delivery of music securing the art through recording technology in all its evolving modern forms. And I'd like to show you a little video right now of uh, some of their very important work. One of the hints or one of the things I, I suggest to, to guys, especially guys recording at home, is to save their money and buy, uh, buy the best microphones they can buy. And rather than buy a couple cheap mics, save up and buy a really good mic. And uh, the better your mics are, the better your stuff is going to sound. Yeah. You know, I've heard that said about furniture. Instead of buying a bunch of cheap furniture, buy something that's, yeah. you know, that's really good, yeah. that costs a little more, and, and, I'll tell you, and I know, the, in the I, long run you're going to be happier. I just happier. had uh, air conditioning and heating uh, redone in my house. $12,000. Can we do one? Cutting? I would think plumbing and too. I had a roof. And <laughs> <laughs> a roof done too. Let's do one cut in. Ed, can you just ask Al the question about the classical guitar? Like, how would you approach Mike on a classical guitar? I just kind of need sure. that to get that started. Al? Yes, dear. What are you doing later? <laughs> I'm going home with you. <laughs> nah. <clears throat> So well, <laughs> yes, you know th these things just don't happen, you know. And yeah. why don't you ask me how I record a uh, a guitar, classical a classical guitar. guitar? So well, how what would you do to record a classical guitar? 
I explained that before, right? I don't you have to got go it. To it again. That's all I did. Well, let's just see if you give, we get the same answer this time. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't remember what I said before. Yeah. So <laughs> just crap up. That's good. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I record a gassical guitar. <laughs> well, it was a gassical guitarist, and uh, we put him in an ISO booth. Did you give the answer? How do you record? You just say, Dean, is the mic in the right spot? That's what <laughs> I mean, You don't even say it. Here. Yeah. We talked about that. Yeah, it's there. Yeah. Put the mic out there, and then Dean puts it where he wants, and that's it. Yeah. As a friend, he would do But he'd do anything to help most friends. He was always concerned about what he did and how it would carry on later. I was always willing to teach younger engineers starting out what was important. He'd do clinics at colleges and never asked to be paid for his knowledge. Hey, Andrew, I think we're missing some. He just loved doing that. Over the years, I started to realize the relationships he had with the artists he worked with. You never know you never hear an artist speak about Al with anything but love. He considered himself a friend to all of his artists and their music. His life was about going into the studio every day. He was so dedicated to everything he did. Everyone speaking today has funny stories they'd like to tell you. I do too. I, I, I did a lot of work with Al on Steely Dan. And one day he was in the studio mixing Steely and he got him way earlier than when they, when they did. And he had everything up. He was listening. <laughs> he had pretty much done the mix and he just needed to play it for him. So at some point, and I don't know what the reason was, but he turned off the monitors and Donald and Walter and Gary walked in. <laughs> they didn't see anything or, or Al didn't see them. And they looked around and thought, well, they saw the, the uh, tape running. They saw the meters were working and they assumed that Al was mixing without monitors. <laughs> and he, he went on about this business. They walked out. And at some point, they came back in. And they said, Al, do you, what's going on? Do you have a mix for us? Can you play it for us? And he says, yeah, you know, I'm pretty much done. And, uh, and I'll play for it. And he starts to play music. They didn't have much to do. They were... Uh, few a few things and it was over that night i get a call from donald walter and gary and they said to me hey can you mix without monitors i said no you can't mix without monitors <laughs> and he said well al did our mix without monitors <laughs> i said well that can't be it just can't be. And he, I'm telling you, he was looking at the meters and it all sounded perfect. I said, well, 
Okay, I mean, I believe you guys. I'm going to call Al. So I call Al. I said, what were you doing today? And he said, well, I was mixing the cut. And I said, were you doing it without monitors? And he said, no, do it without monitors. (laughs) So I said, well, Donald Walter and Gary walked in. They heard nothing. And they saw you looking at the meters. And they thought you were doing a mix based on what the meters were doing. And he said, that's stupid. But, <laughs> but don't let's just leave it like that. Don't say anything. Let's let them and everyone else know I don't use monitors. <laughs> so, so that became a, a story that we told for years. I could talk about my dear friend Al forever, but there are other people who need to talk as well. And I do want to mention that for everybody who's been putting posts on Al's Facebook page, that his wife, Lisa, is totally taken away by it. She loves reading these at the end of the day. She, it's like meeting new friends for her. And she's finding out stories that happened between Al and whoever wrote it. And please continue to do that. Now I'd like to introduce Nico Bullis. Hi, thanks, Els. Um, well, uh, this is not a Zoom meeting I ever wanted to be on. <clears throat> um, first of all, thank you for clarifying that because for the last 40 something years, I thought Al missed without monitors. <laughs> so it's good that you actually got the truth out there so I can stop feeling guilty about needing speakers. Um, Al's the reason I'm still making records. Uh, One really quick story that I can share with you about the kind of person he was. Uh, I went through a lot in my life and I've known Al for 41 years, I think, 42 years. And I assisted him in 1980 or something like that. When we first opened record one, so I decided to get into solar power. I figured, you know, I'm not really working a lot. I want to do something different. And I stopped by to have lunch with Alan. He just told me, don't be ridiculous. You're going to be the house mixer at Capitol. Paula wants you to lease a space upstairs and you're going to do it. And that's all there is to it. I don't even want to talk to you about it. And that was um, like, you know, 12, 15 years ago. Now I'm still making records and it's still his fault. Um, we work together a lot. Uh, and it, it never ceased to amaze me how simple everything seemed to be when you were working with Al. Um, <clears throat> Jenowick and I were, were doing a record with Robert Cray and Steve Jenowick, who you'll probably hear from later and everybody must know, um, worked with Al forever and taught me a lot of what I learned from Al. He would explain what the hell was going on. And we were doing this record with Robert Cray and uh, Al walks in, we had everything up, set up the mics, everything sounds good, everybody's playing. Al walks in, sits down and it just gets better. And, <clears throat> and Steve comes over and he goes, Nico, he goes, you and I can set these mics up every day, all day long, exactly in the same place. And it just never sounds as good as when he sits down and I don't know why. 
And I sat there and I looked at him and I said, I don't either. And I've been watching him for 40 years. So um, I do have, I, I'd like to settle one rumor and tell you that I'm pretty sure it's got to be true. It was reputed that Al decked Al, uh, David Hassinger at the, on the loading dock at RCA. Because uh, David Hassinger, anybody that's worked for Al knows if you're on time, you're late. That's all there is to it. You get there early, early, early. And Hassinger showed up late for a session. Hassinger was assisting Al at the time. So Al didn't say anything. Supposedly the session went down. Al had set everything up himself. Hassinger shows up. They do the session. He says, can you come outside for a second? He takes him out to the loading dock. Bam. Knocks, <laughs> knocks him down on the loading dock. And I always thought that's got, you know, I mean, that's, you know, he's from New York and it's tough guy and it's all that. Shit. Really? And I'll just would kind of go, yeah, yeah, and he would slough it off. So a couple of years ago, we go to Richie Sambora's house out in Calabasas for Easter. And Richie's given us this tour, this beautiful palatial rock star house. And he says, up there's the gym I built. I got a little boxing thing in there. Come on, I'll show you, Al. He brings Al up there. And uh, he's got this great big heavy bag hanging by chains from the ceiling. And he comes up and he starts hitting it. He turns around and he goes, this is pretty cool. I got my boxing training in here. And Al walks up and he goes, yeah? Huh. He walks up to the bag. And all of a sudden, he just kind of shrunk down and rabbit punched it four times as fast as you can imagine. And it was so hard that the bag jumped up. And didn't come down until the fourth punch and then slammed down on the chains. And I looked at the thing and I looked at Richie and Richie's eyes were about this big. And I looked at Al. Al turns around and he goes, yeah, it's not bad. And he walked it. <laughs> and that's when I realized he really was a golden gloves in the Navy. And he probably really did knock Hassinger out. And I never want to be late for one of his sessions. It's a true story. Um, on the lighter side of stuff, you know, Al shared, uh, we were both in a 12-step program together. I had a lot of problems coming up. A lot of people do. And Al was one of the guys that helped me. And we shared sobriety together for 33 years. Um, and that's important because it has nothing to do with music. And if you were friends with Al, your friendship may have started in the studio. And it may center around the family we call studio. But your friendship was one on a soul level. And if you were one of us that was lucky enough to know that, then you are a blessed human being. Um, that's really all I have to share. Cool. Awesome, Nico. I love that story. That's a great story. story. That's a great story. So, okay, a couple of years ago, Al and I were invited by Daniel Detweiler to do a seminar together in Basel, Switzerland. We were there to do the usual Q&As, and each of us would do a jazz band recording. Now, having said that, there's no one I've ever met who isn't in awe of Al. And musicians especially. It's a combination of awe and intimidation, but nobody doesn't know Al. So uh, we were invited to the studio in Basel, and Al gets the nice recording studio and control room. Gen Genowick was there to make sure Al's setup is right. I'm invited to build a recording studio from scratch in a medium-sized auditorium, a challenge I ordinarily appreciate. Not this time. The auditorium is, well, an auditorium. By itself, it doesn't have good ambience, and there's no hope for usable leakage. Eventually, grab a few gobos and, and 
set up uh, what I can find, mics and a fresh Pro Tools system from scratch. And we're missing some essentials like a monitor system, like a dependable monitor system, but get it set up. Cats come in, and I introduce myself to four really dubious musicians. <laughs> <laughs> and we struggle through recording a couple tunes as best we can. The next day, Al and I each demonstrate our mixes and talk about how we mix. Wow, is bringing up mix, is bringing up tracks in a mix, and you know how he does those tiny little level adjustments, and he's talking or telling a story or listening to a story, and everything sounded great. And later it's me, and Al leaves. Later it's me. I start bringing up my mix, track by track. I know I'm in trouble, and I'm scrambling to fix things. I did the best I could to stand the mix up, but no matter what I did, it wasn't convincing, especially musicians who were back and this kind of thing. <laughs> and, and in my defense, their performance was a bit labored and nothing really gelled. Sounded like shit. Next, <laughs> Al is to join me to do a joint presentation after a break and uh, nowhere to be found. And I'm looking around and, and I found him found him here snoozing. <laughs> and, and so I, I wake him up, uh, I go back in the auditorium, and I'm, I'm playing the mix again. And he, he's just shaking his head and says, can I make a suggestion? George, nobody records a double bass in stereo, make it mono. You know, and, and all heads torn, turn to Al and dutifully do it. I play it, and everybody's nodding, <laughs> and it was agreed by everybody that it sounded much better. <laughs> and that was the magic of Al. We all stand on the shoulders of giants, Phil and Ed and Al, and I feel like they were ripped off from underneath me, and now it's my turn to learn how to be sincere and learn how to be an engineer. And I'm reminded of that every time I sit down to work. Boy, I miss him. Chuck, you say something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sure know how to leave it with a tear there, George. <laughs> yeah, dang. Um, well, you know, I probably knew Al the shortest time of all of you guys, um, which still is like well over 25 years. So, um, I'm not exactly sure how I first met Al. I'm certain it was hanging out with all of you guys and Ed and Phil at an AES convention and Al would have been there and I would have probably been on my knees like going, Al Schmidt, I, get to, I got to meet Al Schmidt just now. I, I mean, seriously, um, I always loved music as a little kid um, and and was fortunate to grow up during the Beatles era. Um, but I don't really, th I, I'm certain the first name when it came to engineering that I realized, okay, there's something that the guy behind the console does that is magic because these records sound better than everybody else's. And that guy was Al. I mean, that was the, he probably is really the reason that I decided that um, you know, there was something to pursue in being an engineer and, and that there was a craft and something um, worth doing. Um, so that was Al. 
and um i and at any rate i just i feel like um you know i because of al i i had to be better than i had been and and it really was well in all of you guys too but um al al really he pushed the bar so far. I, you know, I know that we're really not meant to talk about it, but we've all served on Crafts Committee for the Recording Academy and in nominating um, best engineered recordings. And um, we, you know, you'd listen to all these recordings and you kind of debate about whether they were worthy to be nominated. And, and then up would come an Al Schmidt recording and you just go, damn it, he did it again. You know, it was just, his recordings were just that great. They just stood out above everything else. Um, and I, and like you said, George uh, and, and Nico, you hinted at it too. I mean, I was um, doing a session at Capitol and Studio C. I was mixing a Trisha Yearwood record and Vince Gill was doing a Christmas album in, in A and he, they had both A and B, the full, the full orc thing going on. I mean, gazillion musicians in there and um i steve jenowick had set up the session as he had done hundreds of times for for al and i, I got to walk around the room as al kind of like you know talked to the guys and and he'd kind of slightly move the bass mic or he'd, you know just real minor adjustments and we walked into the control room and tony brown was producing and vince was there you could tell vince was just nervous as hell you know to like to be having to sing live with an orchestra and 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 uh al man he stood in the back of the room with tony and vince and told stories and made vince feel like you know at ease i mean he just had a way of doing that his stories he was the best storyteller we we got to hear a lot of his stories a lot of them won't get shared but amazing stories and um at any rate, so Vince kind of sneaks off to the vocal booth and they start running down the session. At this point, Steve's still behind the controls, kind of dialing things in, and it it's sounding really good. I mean, full orchestra and everything. But Al sits down, and I mean, I, I swear, it literally looked like he just waved his hands across the console. And all of a sudden, it sounded amazing. And it's just he had a way of doing that. He, and um, it's just he, the depth and dimension, his heart that he put into the music um, is just won't ever be repeated. That's all I got to say, hey. Frank. Hey, thanks, Chuck. Um, I guess as as you, I didn't really know Al until uh, we started the Metal Alliance. I mean, I knew of Al, but, um, you know, when I first started out uh, back in the 80s, um, there were a few names that you you became aware of. Al was one, Jeff Emmerich was one, um, George was one, um, Elliot and, and all of you guys. But um, I always felt like I was going to do a good job at what I did, but I would never be friends or um, be part of uh, a group like that. And um, 
when I first met Al and the rest of you uh, for the Met Alliance, I was kind of stunned that uh, I was accepted into the group, but it was kind of like in my years before engineering, I was a singer songwriter and I was always trying to, uh, as a songwriter, get songs to uh, Linda Ronstadt or Peter Asher or someone like that. And as I started engineering after nine years of unsuccess, no success as a singer songwriter, I was suddenly working with Peter Asher and, and uh, folks like that. Uh, well, I felt the same way when I, I met Al and the Met Alliance and realized um, that I was talking with giants and talking with people who were the epitome of uh, and the apex of, of what we do. And I couldn't, uh, I've, I still have never come totally to terms with that that I was accepted by the group, but I must say that what Al brought to the table uh, in terms of engineering is beyond uh, just simple great records. Um, I learned so much from him in the 25 years that I've known him. Um, but the most important thing was that Al seemed to epitomize the, the, the passion, but also the, the inbred kind of recognition of what it is to be a real engineer, a real producer, a real musician. Not someone that just had the technology under his grasp, because that's one of the skill sets is the technology. But beyond the technology, there's also the art. And the art is not so easy to grasp. And Al embodied that art in a way that no one else did. He had a way of understanding the artistry along with the technology. The third aspect of the engineering and production uh, ideal that that I always strive for is something that's not talked about much, but it's the psychology of being an engineer, of being a producer. I don't think that artists work with an engineer or producer over and over and over again, unless there's something other than great sound. And what that is, is the ability to put an artist at ease, to put uh, something into the artist's mind that that aspect is all taken care of. It's done. Al is sitting at the console. And so they no longer have to do anything other than, uh, than focus on their performance. And Al would then draw that performance out of them. If you listen to his records, it's not just about great sound, and it is great sound, but more so, it's having that ability to draw the best out of the artist. And when the artist goes back and listens to their, the recording that they've done, they say, you know, that's the best performance I've ever done. And 
I think that I got to work with this guy again because he's going to help me to be the best artist that I can be. And the ability to run a session is, is so much more than that technology and art. It's the ability that when the artist or the musician walks in the room, you know he's got your back. You know that he is going to do the absolute best that can be done for you. And that allows everyone to focus only on one thing, and that's their performance. And, and that was part of the magic of Al that went way beyond just the fact that he was a great mixer. Um, I think that, uh, that when, you, when, you, when you take this up and you, you take the, the idea of being in the engineering profession, you look to people like Al and you look to those who go beyond the simple day-to-day. -day. And I think for me, I have learned so much. Uh, you know, in all these stories you hear, Al always got there early. I didn't do that when I first started out because I didn't understand the importance of that. But if you read Al's book and you read the things that Al has said over you, part of the over the years, part of what you come to grips with is he was going to make sure that when the downbeat happened, he was ready to record magic. Now, nowadays, so many times people get used to being lazy and they'll, they won't record the first take or the second take. They're worrying getting sounds and drawing things up. Al was ready from the downbeat to get the magic. And if the magic was that first take, and you'll hear uh, the story Al always tells about Breezen uh, with George Benson, um, where they just went in, downbeat comes in, they do uh, Broadway and some of the other takes that were just magic, put the album out, and about 90% of it was first takes. And so many people today don't understand that. But Al intrinsically understood what it is to be a musician, what it is to be um, part of that passion, that music and, and getting that emotion to people. And uh, I always have said that uh, uh, when people ask me what I do, I say I record emotion. There's no one that recorded emotion better than Al Schmidt. And for me, um, he was he was just that kind of guy and you felt it the first time you you talked with him and uh to this day um, i will never forget all he taught me and all he meant to me and uh i just believe that uh there was uh, uh that he's up there now looking out over all of us and him phil and eddie and just uh saying, uh, I got your back, because he always did. He had everybody's back, and he always made everybody better. Anyway, Jim? Thanks, Rick. So I should point out that one member of our group is missing is Al. He, uh, it was a great story how at one AES performance, he was secretly hitting the mute button on Frank's microphone during the during the stage event. I was wondering and, where he was just a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> <Me too. laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, uh, no, wonderfully said, Frank. Thank you. Uh, so, like others here, I met Al in early '80s, '81, '82, around Sound Labs. He was probably doing he was doing something with Tommy LaPuma, maybe Brenda Russell, something along that. And but it wasn't until some years later when we put this group together where I really got to spend a lot of time with him. And obviously, all the accolades for Al are well deserved. I mean, as an engineer, he was. He's the Mount Rushmore, the, the Washington Monument. He's all those things. And it doesn't surprise me. I get notes from all over the world, people asking about Al. It's not surprising. You know, what a great career. But I was lucky enough to get to know him as a person. And once you got past the Al, the engineer, getting to know him as a person was, was, a, was a special thing, too. Um, a lot of people are talented. People on this call are immensely talented. Al was supremely talented, but to me, and as a person, what Al was about was his strength of character. When Al, okay, it could be right or it could be wrong, but you knew where Al was coming from. And you always knew whether he was right or wrong, that it was coming from some from his heart, it was something he believed. And if he felt somebody was being wronged or endangered, look out because even though his stature was diminutive, he was never, ever the smallest guy in the room. That was not Al's personality. In fact, it was rare when, that Al would say, I don't know, what do you think? Because Al knew what he thought, and Al wasn't afraid to express it. He had a lot of courage. He had courage. He was a brave person to stand up for what he thought was right. And, you know, even when I disagreed with him, I knew where that was coming from. And I knew, um, you know, that, if Al knew other things, maybe he have a, he'd have a different opinion, but I always respected him because he deserved respect. He deserved respect. He earned it. And, you know, his defense of people, his defense of animals, um, all those things that, that Al found a passion for were not going to be set aside. Uh, he was never, ever going to compromise on what he thought was the right thing. And that was that was joyous, joyous and, and learning and made me respect him more and more and more and more. Um, he was just that person. And I think I think a lot of us on this call would have to say that Al was a special in so many ways. But if he wasn't the person he was, I don't know if he would be as famous as engineer as he is. And we were lucky to spend I was lucky to spend the last 15 years with him. And as far as, you know, being on time. You can imagine what it was like to try and organize phone calls between these seven or eight personalities with schedules, different time zones, all that stuff. That was, that is, that is a miracle on ice just to pull that off. Every call, every call, Al was the first one on waiting every time. And it didn't matter if it was stupid early hours on the West Coast or when it was. If Al said he was going to be there, he was there. And hey, Jim, what's going on? You know, was that and you had to be ready because Al was ready to go because that's that's Al, you know. So, um, you know, I my heart goes out to Lisa. I know that a lot of us will be there for her, and uh, the respect we all have for Al is it will not will not linger. It will it will maintain it will be it will persevere. And uh, the special thing we all got to do was we got to see the interaction between Eddie and Al, two of the great personalities of our lifetimes. And um, hopefully we can remember that and keep smiling and remember those good things because uh, they deserve to be carried with us. They deserve to be with us in, in everything we do. And um, I hold a place for that. I hold a place for them in my heart. So 
You know, the other thing I remember about those calls, Jim, is uh, where's Frank? (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. But I got to tell you, you know, talking about uh, Al is is uh, reminds me of a time when um, I was always a bit intimidated by Al. Now, I'm the tallest guy in the room, usually, (laughs) and he's the shortest guy in the room. But I would not. I'll tell you, there are times he would shoot me a look that uh, that was about as intimidating (laughs) as it gets. I'm sure you've all seen the look. Oh, yeah. At one point or another. Um, He could do more with those eyes than just about anybody I know. But I remember one time I had gone to uh, an AES meeting with uh, with Bruce Wedeen and Bruce uh, was uh, holding court. And at one point I said to I said to Bruce, I said, uh, so I understand uh, you learned everything, you know, uh, from your grandfather, Al Schmidt. And uh, so Al, of course, got that wind of this. And the next day, we all did a panel together. And uh, of course, I walked in late. And uh, but as I sat down, I looked over at Al. And he had them. He had that look. And I knew I did something wrong. And uh, but he was cordial during the thing. And then afterwards, he took me out back. And he said, uh, so you know, uh, there's no way uh, I was going to uh, intimidate him anymore because he looked at me like he looked up at me like this and said, uh, so I heard uh, you uh, you made fun of me last night. And I said, no, I wasn't making fun of you. It was just and he said, oh, he started out with I got a bone to pick with you. And the way he said that <laughs> was was enough. And uh um, but knowing of his uh, his Golden Gloves history, I was not uh, about to uh, take that on. But he he had a way of 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 just knowing when uh, he really did. He he didn't he didn't uh, suffer fools lightly, and and uh, he would tell you if he thought you you screwed up, um, and he'd also be m- more than uh, generous with his compliments if he thought you did really well. Okay. Right. Way, you guys all look fantastic in your ties. That's right. This is all. Nico, you, you want to tell us about the ties? Nico, yeah. The, the reason that the ties happened is a bet that I made with Al in uh, over the holidays in Paula Salvatore's office at Capitol 2010. Um, I walked in and Al was sitting on the sofa uh, and he was reading GQ magazine, which to me, it was doubly hysterical, A, because he's reading GQ, and B, I only own JCPenney t-shirts. That's all I ever lived in. And um, so I looked at it, and, and the only cynical thing I could think of was it should really be EQ, not GQ. What are you doing? And he looked at me totally serious, and he goes, Neeks, it says here that ties and casual pants are coming in next year. You might want to try it. It might help this miserable excuse of a career you have. Now <laughs> that's like a complimentary good morning. And, and I looked at him and I says, oh, yeah? All right. Well, listen, if you do it, I'll do it. Well, little did I know that Al has a collection of, I don't know, a thousand Italian silk ties. He's got them, just collected them forever because he loved dressing up. I didn't even own a tie, but the bet was on. 
So I went to Macy's and bought a tie. And in January, I started my room at Capitol and I showed up and Al was there and he had a tie on and I had a tie on. And to my knowledge, neither of us has done a session in a studio without a tie since that then. So it's 11 years now. Yeah. He didn't always wear ties, but he was not about to lose a bet to me. <laughs> Certainly not for $5. No. And to, to supplement the story and show you how serious it got, I didn't know that I was in New York and I was in New York doing a, a, a working on a, a track at Avatar. And Al was in town with Lisa. They had an apartment there. And so he just walks in the control room and I look over and I'm like, holy shit, Al. And he goes, I just want to make sure you were wearing a tie. And then he walked out. <laughs> and thank God I was. So I never lost. And I guess now um, we're kind of stuck with ties forever. Yeah. Well, don't expect me to carry on the tradition. <laughs> well, stuck with hair as good as yours, you don't need a tie. <laughs> <laughs> I love you guys. Looking all groovy anywhere, you know. <laughs> That's true. Is it dangerous, well, turn? Yeah. Well, I just, I just had to pop in here because I, I want to. Now we heard an illusion that this was a five dollar bet, but what, what were the terms of the bet? <sighs> Let's just leave it at I'm always wearing a tie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. He will, he will come back from the beyond to enforce that, that bet. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah, right. Getting the heavy bag is just the polite version of stories about Al. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I had to look up what the word irascible meant. <laughs> well, guys, it's absolutely amazing, um, and I think we'll we'll probably all come back on at the very end of this, and there'll be some more stories. But it it's hard to find a group of people who have known Al as well and for as long as you guys, and that's not a reflection on how unbelievably old you all are. So don't worry about that. But did I do? How'd I do? Um, but um, so we got, we actually have a video though from someone who has known Al even longer than you guys. So I want to play that now. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, uh, some guy named Jeff Greenberg, I think. That's so, Moses. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, this is Jeff, one of Al's oldest friends uh, from, uh, he's known him since I think, well, he says in the video, so I'm not even going to say anything else about it. If you don't know who Jeff is, uh, he runs uh, the Village Recorders and is an absolute legend in the recording business. So here is a little video from Jeff. Hi, I'm Jeff Greenberg from the Village. This is a moment I never thought I'd have to witness or experience uh, but I'm going to speak to you about my friend Al. Al was one of a kind and yet a member of one of the most amazing fraternities of giants I've ever known in my life. Another one of our friends about a little over a year ago, Ed Sherney, got sick. And Al and Chuck and Elliot and Frank uh, all came out and got in bed with Ed that night to let him know how he was loved. And all these people loved Al the same. It was a community of brothers and giants, as I said. I met Al 52 years ago, 1968. I was managing a band and uh, I wanted the guy that produced the Jefferson Airplane. 
and uh, he did a great record. Uh, like everything he did, if you look at his Grammys and you look at his discography from uh, Count Basie onwards to Peter Gunn, I mean, I'm sure nobody needs to be you know familiarized with all he's done. We began a friendship. Uh, we were roommates. I was in the studio when he did Alone together with Dave Mason. Uh, he was with me when I ran the Greek. I mean, we had more fun. Uh, and we had some tough times, too. I remember there was a time when Al thought he lost his hearing after his BMW got hit. Uh, we, I would say, we're best friends. As many people on this, on this video will probably feel and say, too, I don't think anybody uh, can claim to love Al more than any, any number of people here today. But I loved him with everything in my heart. And uh, I could tell you a million different stories. We were once in Sausalito about uh, trying to produce a movie with the Grateful Dead, Santana, and the Jefferson Airplane, and it's been pretty much story of my life, the dork in the room. But Al still loved me and was my friend. I pretty much got to a place in my life through substance abuse and everything else where I was pretty much all alone, which happens to people that get like that. My one friend on the planet would call me. How you doing, Jeff? You gotta come out with me. I found this thing called yoga. It's amazing. I go, Al, I'm busy. Two weeks later, Jeff, I found this thing called A Course in Miracles. You should come see it. The girls are amazing. And uh, Al, I'm sorry, but you know, I'm busy. And that same day he called back an hour later and said, Jeff, there's a party tomorrow night. There's a whole bunch of people here, you know, from the Greek in the studio and we want you to come. Al, I'm sorry, I'm busy. Half hour later, Jeff, there's a real cute girl here and we told her about you and she wants to meet you. And being the Beetlejuice type of person I was at that time, I'm like, oh, and I went to the party, but it wasn't a party, it was a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Al Schmidt had tricked me in to saving my life. That was 33 years ago. And a little after that, a young lady I knew from, I met at the Greek, a friend. Father started a recording studio, it was about to be liquidated, asked if I could come save it. Uh, I went with Al, we came and looked at it. It was pretty much an over with dump, but we saw a couple records that were good and Al had known about the place. We decided to give it a try. The family uh, hired Al on at my behest as a consultant and Al for two years, dictated every wiring, interface, interconnect, uh, everything that would be necessary for a state-of-the-art studio, which is what this place is today. Uh, I truly do owe Al my life. And because of Al, and because he tricked me into getting sober, A, I'm alive, and B, I have a pretty amazing life, albeit a much emptier one now, without my very, very dearest and best friend. To Lisa, to Al's children and grandchildren that he loved so much. My sympathy, my heart is with you. Uh, we've all lost a giant. We've lost a true giant. And what he's left us is sweetness, the sweetness of his smile, the beautiful sound of his voice, the somehow sugary, sweet sounds that all his strings and vocals and recordings contained. Uh, he was proud of almost everything he did. And I know 
I'm the most proud that I could call myself a friend of Al Schmidt. I'll miss him forever. Hey everybody, it's me. And hold on, let me pin my video because we're in speaker mode now, which means that OBS, that uh, Zoom is going to take care of all of our video switching, which that can't go well, but hopefully it will go well. Um, so just before we get into, uh, we've got another small list of people who wanted to come on and just talk about Al. I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about Al. And I've just got two quick stories. Um, one is that about six years ago, when we first moved to the UK, my wife and I were staying with her mother's so at my mother-in-law's place out in the middle of nowhere and as anyone who's lived with their mother-in-law knows as lovely as she was you still got to get out of the house so we would go to the pub each night just to give her some time we'd get some time go out for about an hour hour and a half and then we'd come back and my wife would play scrabble with her or something like that and every once in a while my wife's mom would put on some music to listen to. And they had a stereo, the, the typical, like, mom and the kids go away for a weekend, get back, and dad's bought a stereo. But this was 1968, so it actually sounded amazing. Some big Wharfdale speakers and a Sansui amp. And so every once in a while, she would listen to something, and we walked through the door, and I heard about three seconds of this record. And I said, I don't know who's playing trumpet, but that's got to be Al Schmidt. And I walked over and picked up the CD case and looked, and it was a Chris Body record that Al had done. And I immediately emailed Al just to tell him the story. Because, I mean, it was instantaneous when I walked through that door. And he said, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good record. Manager was a pain in the ass, though. So that was very Al. And um, the only other thing, and this, is, this will actually transition us into uh, our next speaker, because Steve Jenowick was on this session in 2013... Al did a two-day seminar recording a big band, and I was at home in my studio. I'm sure I was supposed to be mixing, but of course I wasn't, and I was looking at email or Facebook or wherever they announced this seminar. And before the little ding of the incoming email had stopped, I had signed up for the seminar. Like, I am absolutely going to do this. I was lucky enough to do a few sessions where Al was recording an orchestra on projects I was working on, but I thought, man... To not have any responsibility and get to be in the control room and watch him do what he does will be amazing. So we show up for the first day, we're tracking a big band for the first day, and then he was going to mix on the second day, which he only slowed it down, I think, because we had to stop for lunch. Otherwise, the album would have been done the first day. So we're all sitting in the back of the room after walking around, and he's showing us the microphones. And this is at Capitol, so it's great microphones in a great room with great players. And a lot of people can say that that's why those records sound good, but it's a hell of a lot more than that. So we're sitting in the control room. All the mics are open. Everybody's warming up. There's never a, hey, can I hear the drums? Hey, can I hear this? People are just warming up in the room. Al's doing a bit. Doesn't seem like he's doing much. And I'm listening to these microphones, especially like the drum overheads. And I'm thinking, man, that sounds dark. And I would have been diving for the EQ on this. And it's going through a pair of Neves, because that's what he was using for the mic prees. And thinking, man, get that shelf in there, crank that thing up. That's a bit dark. And wow, the horns sound a bit distant. What the hell is going on here? So then they go for the first run through. And as Frank said, they're in record, because of course you're getting take one. And it's one of those charts, which as most big band charts do, starts with this big chord, and then you go into the rhythm section before the head starts. That first chord hit and sounded so amazing that I laughed out loud to the point where Al had to turn around and go, shh. It was incredible. 
it was effortless, seemingly. It was natural. And as someone alluded to before, he could sit down at a console and just by listening, he made it sound better. Just incredible. And so our next uh, speaker, let's call him speaker, I guess. It's a little weird. Uh, is Steve Jenowick, who is in the room for years and years watching this magic happen every single day. So Steve, if you can come in, I'll make sure to pin your video. And then you are on. Thanks, Andrew. Um, first of all, I, I, you know, I sat next to Al for 20 some years and he never mixed with the monitors on. I don't know why he didn't show you guys how to do that. Like it makes the mixing go so fast, but we can talk about that later. Well, my meters are always pinned, <laughs> so it wouldn't have worked for me. Um, anyway, thanks for having me. You know, everybody said, you know, just pick a story to tell. Well, that's pretty hard. Um, <laughs> picking a story. You know, there's so many stories. Um, but to, to kind of tag on to what some of you guys were saying, we, um, a few years ago, we got hired to do a, uh, a Trisha Yearwood, or not Trisha Yearwood, that, we did get hired to do that work, but uh, Martina McBride, Christmas album, big band Christmas album. And, uh, you know, it was the usual stuff, find out what it's going to be, do the setup, all that kind of stuff. And uh, came time to, and for some reason on this session, and I'm not sure why, we had a really early downbeat. It was like a 9 a.m. downbeat, which is, which is terribly early, especially on a record date. So, as usual, I'm there at, at literally 5 o'clock in the morning because you've got to get everything set up and everything else. And I show up at the studio at Capitol at 5 a.m., and McBride, John McBride, is sitting in the parking lot waiting for me. I thought, man, okay. That, I mean, I knew he was going to bring a mic or something, but, you know, 5 a.m. I said, John, what are you doing? It's 5 o'clock in the morning. He said, I want to see the whole thing. I want to see the whole thing, start to finish. I got to see the whole thing. All right, well, come on down, you know. So we go down and, you know, he's looking around and the guys are there with me and we're setting up and doing our, you know, clicking the mics, doing our normal thing. Al shows up terribly early, I'm sure. You know, the whole thing goes down. And Al, or, uh, John spent the entire day sitting next to Al on the other side of the console. Didn't say a word, just sat there. When people would come in, he would get up and move back, you know, but didn't say anything all day. So we get through the day, it's a double session. You know, we probably did half the album in that day. <clears throat> and uh, session's over and we were switching to different stuff the next day. So there was a lot of stuff to be taken down. So by the end of it, it was just me and John again in the control room. Everybody had left and I'm repatching and getting ready for tomorrow and whatnot. And John, he finally just, he, he's shaking his head. And, and I said, what, John, you know, did you have a question or something? What do you, what do you want to know? He's looking, he said, that was the most complicated nothing I'd ever seen in my entire life. And, you know, that kind of sums up how Al worked. It was never an effort. It was never, you know, like somebody said, it was never, can I hear the drums? Can I, you know, we just kind of did it. And, and yeah, there was a system behind it. And, you know, we could get into the nuts and bolts of, of how it actually worked. But, you know, it just happened. And, and those records, you know, all the records we made on the, on the best days, you know, you show up and there was always laughing and food and, you know, carrying on and, you know, telling stories. And somehow at the end of the day, you always had a record and it always sounded great. You know, I mean, those big, huge sessions, you know, I know both of us, we loved those sessions. And, and again, if, if you, you know, we were there really early and if Al said he was going to be there at 9 a.m., 
he was going to be there at 8.30 a.m. and you better be ready for him because, <laughs> you know, he, there, was, there was no late. You know, there was, not being in record for take one or the rehearsal was just, you know, it was just, it wasn't that he had to tell you that it wasn't acceptable. You just knew. So, you know, part of that is good teachers. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had spent a lot of time with Al before I became his everyday assistant with, with my friend, Bill Smith, who was his assistant before me, who unfortunately can't be with us here today. He had some stuff going on, but, um, but those big sessions were so much fun. But for me personally, the best time I ever had was when it was just the two of us. It was just a hang. You know, we, were, we became such good friends over the years. And when it was just the two of us, it was relaxed. And, you know, we, we'd just make a record. We'd mix for a while. And then, you know, back in the day, we might go out and smoke a cigar. You know, if there was a ball game on, we might watch the ball game for a little bit. We always got more work done than anybody else in the day. I mean, he still mixed four or five songs a day. That was, that was simple. But, you know, it was never... It was never a chore to do that. The ones that became a chore, you know, once in a while you get some stuff, you know, we all get them, it's difficult. The ones that were difficult weren't as much fun, um, but it, you know, we did them all. But those, those records when it was just us, that was the best. Just the two of us in the room, we could do what we wanted to at our own pace. And, you know, I'm gonna miss, I'm gonna miss those days the most, that's for sure. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't wanna, you know, <laughs> It's a rough, rough day, rough week at my house, but uh, I know we'll all miss Al terribly. I know I'll miss him terribly. I already do. So, um, yeah, don't have much more to say. Yeah, I, I think the um, like the best part of the two-day recording seminar was at around five o'clock on the first day after we'd successfully tracked like seven hundred songs, and we all went outside. <laughs> And Al, there was a box of cigars. There were enough cigars for anybody you wanted to smoke, and Al told stories. And I think we were there till 8.30 or 9. Nobody wanted to leave. Nope. Anybody nope. else doing that seminar? You'd be like, hey, man, let's get back in the studio. You know, I paid for this. Yeah. Al, the stories were worth just as much as anything. Well, and because of the way Al worked, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't this is how I set up my snare chain. You know, there was, because there wasn't a lot of technical stuff, a lot of times him talking was, was the seminar. You know, we did seminars all the time with Mixed with the Masters and all that kind of stuff. You know, we used to say at Mixed with the Masters, we'd go out for lunch outside. For, you know, for those who haven't been there, you take a lunch break and you usually go outside if the weather's nice. Sometimes we'd sit outside all afternoon and talk. And that was as much instruction as we could get in the control room doing something. was just Alec, because he he didn't use gear the way a lot of us do. He, he, you wanted to get the, the, you know, how he did it, the philosophical reason of why he was doing something, or, or more importantly, why he wasn't doing something and why you didn't have to go down that road. So, so yeah, or, you know, or even, even on a session when, you know, he would get the band in as soon as he could, do a take, get everybody to come in. And when they came in and listened, you know, these are great musicians. They knew what had to be done. So they would come in and listen, they'd go back out there and it would get better. And Al didn't have to, you know, he didn't have to adjust anything. He just had to go, look, is that what you want? Okay. And they would go back out and adjust. It was really quite an incredible thing to watch. I always tell some, you know, sometimes Al fixing, fixing the guitar was him going out and talking to the guitar player, you know, or whatever that was. But maybe even not about the guitar sound, but about something, you know, and then at the end you go, eh, you know, can you, can you add a little pop to the, to the amp and, you know, and that was it. 
So it was just, it was always so effortless and a pleasure to watch and my privilege to sit next to him for 20 some years. Yeah, I think for any of us who got to be in the control room while he was working, it was the, the opportunity to watch him listen. And that's where his magic was, was the way he listened and what he focused on. Because the moves were tiny, the gear was nothing, there's nothing going on with that. But he listened in a way that was more compelling, I think, than just about anybody I've ever been in the room with. Absolutely. Really, really amazing. I, I used to play a game while we were mixing every morning, I, you know, because I'd come in and set, set the songs up and stuff. And, and I got, it got to be a game where I would, I would start the mix, obviously. And not obviously, but I would. And my game was to start the mix and see what he would change when he came in. And, you know, there were a few times where, you know, I was thinking, I got him this time. This, I got it. This sounds really good. I got it. And he'd come in and move three faders and the whole thing would go. And I'm like, son of a bitch, he got me again. I never got him. <laughs> never got him. But that's the way I learned was I do it and then watch what he changed. You know, it was it was great. Yeah, absolute genius. Thanks so much, Steve. Um, and as you as you said, Bill Smith couldn't be here today, um, but we will be doing uh, an evening with the people who work with Al at some point later on in this series. Um, so next, we have another Bill, but a totally different Bill. Uh, Bill Schnee, if you could pop your video on and unmute, and I we, done did it. Love to hear you say something, you know, good um, or or nasty, whatever you got about Al. Can you not hear me? No, yes, gotcha. Bill, Bill, you put a tie on. Did you it, tie it, Well, as George, as George is pointing out, it would take something like Al to get this out of me, or on me, actually. So, yes, like uh, all of the gentlemen before me, you're hearing the same kind of thing over and over. I suppose you'll continue to hear it, all, only because it's all true. You know, what a guy. <laughs> Uh, so I, I, I teared up a couple of times already and I am a crier, so I'm going to try to get through this. Okay. Uh, bear with me if I don't, what a sissy. Um, uh, my early mentor, a guy named Toby Foster, when I was learning, I said, well, who do you think are great engineers? And this is when I'm learning, learning, like what, you know, what's a dynamic mic, what's a ribbon mic. And he said, uh, Phil Ramone and Al Schmidt, listen to those records. Well, as it turns out, I had already been listening to Al Schmidt records. Um, when I got, uh, when I was 13, I got into stereo, hi-fi, and I made my way to Henry Mancini records of all things. Why? Because they sounded great. And in those days, engineers didn't get credit very often, but evidently Henry made sure that Al got credit on all those, all of his records. So of course, with my name Schnee, I remember the name Schmidt pretty easily. So when Toby said that, I went, oh, I know that Al Schmidt. I, lo I love those, those records. It wasn't necessarily the style that I was gonna be getting into. I was starting off in rock, but I, I loved the sound of the records. So, um, and then of course, I, as I get into the business, I find out I've been listening to his records four or five years before that with Sam Cooke and other records that he had done that I, before I was ever interested in engineering. But I got interested in engineering uh, and I started working in engineering and I found my way to a studio called Sound Labs. And this is the early 70s that was uh, owned by Armin Steiner. And lo and behold, uh, Al came in and worked in the adjacent studio. Uh, 
and uh, I, oh wow, I gotta I gotta meet him. And so I said to Armin, you know, you gotta introduce me, please. So uh, when it, at a convenient time, he did that. And then subsequent to that, I was in the mix room and he was in the recording room. He came in to see what I was doing and sat there and listened for a little bit. And like the gentleman before me that said they were shaking in their boots, uh, I was too. And uh, But he was, as always, extremely, as I came to find out, always extremely complimentary. And he went back to his room. So a few days later, I said, you know, uh, you know, if we can possibly work it out, I'd love to have a lunch with you. And he said, sure, absolutely. So we went to, uh, we set up a time and went to Villa Capri, which was one of his favorite Italian restaurants at the time. And we sat down and started chatting. And I said, Al, you, I listened to those Henry Mancini records when I first got into hi-fi. And I've got to say, you are a genius. He goes, I'm not a genius. What are you talking about? I said, well, I've been to the RCA studios on Sunset and there's no way in the world that that sound that I could ever dream of getting that sound of those records out of those rooms. And he looked at me like I was an idiot and he said, I didn't do those in that room. I did those in the original RCA studio on Sunset and Vine. It was an incredible room. I could never have gotten those sounds in that room either. And I went, oh, you're not a genius. <laughs> but of course, but of course he really was. And uh, you've heard it before and uh, uh, from the other guys and with me too, you know, uh, it, in, in some part, it's not so much, it's almost like it's not what he did, it's what he didn't do. But however he did it, he did it. And, uh, and, and again, again, piling on what the others have said, the, over the years, what I come to find out is even better than his talent and his natural talent, ability, and how he developed it, is the human being himself. And, uh, you know, that's like all of us, that's gonna really, it's, I'm missing it now. Thanks so much for that, Bill. Yeah, I think I've been so busy trying to get ready for this that I fortunately hasn't really sunk in the size of the hole that he's left behind, but it's, uh, it's colossal and growing. But also I think something like tonight is really great to help us um, get through it in a lot of ways. So um, next, a young man named Tommy Vicari would like to speak. So Tommy, if you could switch on. Where are you? Hold on. I'm juggling here. There he is. All right, there. Okay. I'm unmuted. Yep. All good. Oh, hi. Well, you know, um, one of the great things about what it is that we do is, is and, and like Frank was saying, you, you, there's more to it than just the technology. And, 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 um, and, and every day you get to go to the studio and you can, you, you, you get to be a part of um, a moment when magic happens. And as an engineer, you kind of have to be ready for for the when the magic happens you know that's why you know things like getting there early and and things like that uh, because, because i did that too i i at the beginning you know i would show up early you know and and anything that can go wrong will go wrong so so you know getting there two hours early now is just part of part of the deal i first met al schmidt um 
Uh, I was working at A&M and I was working under, uh, I was assisting Hank Sacallo. And um, one night, it was 1974, I think. And we, he said, come on, we're going to go over to Capital A and we're going to, we're gonna, we're gonna see Al, and so w- we went over, and um, they had just finished recording um, George Benson's Masquerade. Okay, and Tommy Lapuma is there, and there are all the musicians are still in the in their seats, and we walk into Studio A, and they're playing back Masquerade with George Benson singing over the loudspeakers. That was the first. That was like the first time I, I had ever met him and and, and and you know and and this was one of those moments like being in the room when you know they recorded tapestry or you know mad dogs and englishmen or 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 you know the, 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 we've all experienced this you know where you you know you, you start recording from the beginning of the session you don't you know you don't wait you know you record everything it's it's like page one of the engineering handbook. But but I think the, the thing to stress here is we all know how great of an engineer he was and what he did and what he didn't do and all that. But the thing was, is, um, um, you know, the, the, the man himself was, was just a very generous, uh, funny, um, um, <laughs> volatile at times. But but but, you know, I, I was two working at, at sound labs with Armin Steiner. And, and, um, you know, I start, I, I worked with Al jr. As an assistant. Uh, I worked with Steve as an assistant as at, at Lion's share. And so we became uh, Al and we be, became, became close because of the, you know, the family relations, you know, and, and uh, when my wife was pregnant, uh, Al you know, through a shower for, for her, you know, or Al's wife at the time. And, 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 uh, and, um, you know, a lot of our conversations, interestingly enough, were, were, were about family. We're about baseball. We're about, you know, because I, I would typically always go in and say hello. Well, you know, I did a, I, I was presented a, an award the other night at the, uh, at the, uh, uh, Cinema Audio Society. And I said, you know, when you walk down that hallway into Capitol Studios, you're walking into history. You know, you walk into this, you come down to the end of the, the hallway and you walk into Studio A and you're walking into, you know, history there. And when you do that, you become part of that history, you know, when, once you, if you have the opportunity to work there. And, and you know, whenever... I worked there and I spent a lot of time in that, in that building. And typically every time I'd be doing something, whether it was the Oscars or a big band or a movie or whatever it is, Al would come in from next door and he, and he would come, he would come in the room there'd be producers and cameras and, and he would walk up and he would give me a kiss (laughs) and everybody would, everybody would go like, it's Al Schmidt. I said, and I said, yeah, yeah, we, we do this regularly. <laughs> you, know, you know, it was just like one of those, one of those greetings. He was just like family, you know, I mean, it was uh, uh, something that, uh, that I, you know, I'll, I'll always remember and really, really miss, you know, um, but, but, you know, 
the thing is, is you get to getting to work behind guys like Phil and Al and and Bill and you know and 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 George and all those because I didn't really assist George or you know Elliot or, or but I, I would have loved to because they were always made my favorite records you know and and but but you know at A and M I got to work uh, we're missing Bruce Botnick we're missing Hank Sakala we're missing. Ray Gerhardt, we're missing, you know, Dick Bogert, we're missing Henry Louis, we're missing, you know, there's a lot of guys that that you get to work behind or or watch work. And you, you, you know, you take a little bit from everybody and you and you, you know, it kind of comes out you. But you know, I think Al, Al was just um, um, you know, when we went to Ed's uh, memorial. He came out and we were, you know, we were obviously very upset. And and he said to me, he said, uh, I'm not going. <laughs> he says, I'm not going to go. And for some reason, you know, I kind of believed him. You know, I, I kind of <laughs> I kind of believe like, you know, he, he's not going. You know, I mean, I, I, and, 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 and then when it finally happened, you know, it was, of course, shocking. And it's, you know, when you figure we just lost Sammy Nestico at 96. You know, we lost to Ed last year. There's a lot of our colleagues that we're losing, you know, you know. So I think it's it's important to 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 pay homage to these people and and to know like like Armin Steiner, you know, and and Bill, you know, and 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 all all of you guys on there. I really feel fortunate to be able to to you know, Sammy used to say, um, when you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. You know what I mean? And I kind of think that's what uh, we've we've managed to luck into in a way. Um, uh, and and being around being around guys like like Al because Al was always very supportive, always um, you know um, he would walk in at any moment. Uh, and, um, you know, stand behind and, and you know, and, and encourage and, and be, uh, and be uh, supportive. And, and uh, you know, and, and, and then we, you know, the, the, the thing was is, is, is it, our relationship was more on a personal level, too. It wasn't just that I admired him as an engineer. I admired him as a person. You know, he, we all had our ups and downs, you know. He had his, he corrected them, but he had a way of making you feel like when he was talking to you, and this is why the, the outpouring of love from around the world is, is what it is. It's because when, when, he was, when you were engaged in a conversation, he had a way of making you feel like you were the only one in the room, you know, and you could, and, 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 he, and he had your attention. He was listening to you, you know, so... I think those are the things I'll miss the most about about Al is is not knowing he's in the other room, you know, not knowing that I won't see him again. You know, that's uh, the you know his engineering was obviously what it is. It's it's uh, and it goes back. I mean, you know, yeah, I was listening to Sam Cooke. I mean, a change is going to come. I think is one of the greatest records ever made for many many reasons. You know, I mean, it, just the, the history of it and everything. Uh, not many people know that, you know, that he he did the, those records, you know, or Hatari or all of that stuff. So, 
But, uh, you know, you look at the list of the, the artists that he's worked with and you, you can't, you, you can't really know it. Nobody really matches up to that. I don't think, I don't think that's just going to be something that won't be, you know, it's like records that won't be broken, you know? Um, but, um, you know, Ed, Ed, Ed was, was another guy. Ed was the guy that, uh, I would, you know, I knew for years, you know, we had personal, I think the thing about uh, our group of people is that there are these personal relationships that go far beyond just getting a drum sound, you know, and it's not just, it's not, it's like, A, you have to be ready when the magic happens. B, you have to make the artist comfortable, you know, and Al had all that, he had that ability. He was, he was, he had the ability to, make them comfortable and be able to get the best out of people. And I think that's, other than the technology, I think that's one of the most important factors about being an engineer is to be ready when the magic happens, because if you miss it, you know, you, it's gone, you know? So, yeah. Anyway, I think that's what, you know, my recollection of this whole thing, you know, and, and, and uh, even, you know, my whole family feels the loss. So, as as we all do so well and i think something that's really becoming i mean it's obvious i think to us but maybe sometimes we don't feel that it even needs to be said but maybe it does need to be said especially in this larger context is that with some people they had home studio studios that were their home and like capital was al's home so yeah al could walk into any room in capital and it's like oh hey al's here al could walk into any control room in the world and right. whoever was working would just say, oh, Al's here. I mean, they basically invented the Grammys because they had to give that guy an award. Like, he <laughs> is music making. He is record making. It's not a guy who did this record and that record and that record. He was there pretty much the entire time working at the highest level and making important records. And it's not even just a matter of being there to capture the magic. The magic was more magical because he was the guy capturing it. Well, and, and I think the genius is, is that, you know, it, it picking the right microphones, you know, not getting in the way of the performance, not getting in the way. I've saw engineers tell, tell piano players to play harder with the right hand than play with the left hand. I thought, what the hell are you saying? What, what, you know, I mean, that's, you're not supposed to, you're not, you, you're supposed to be invisible in a way until you're, I mean, you know, <laughs> Hank used to say, you know, when I was his assistant, he'd say, you, you know, you don't have an opinion unless somebody asks you. You know, it's not like, well, I think. <laughs> and then they would go, well, did somebody ask you? <laughs> no, nobody asked me. So, so you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, the genius of it is, it, it, and Armin is this way too, and, I'm, and a lot of, uh, I think a lot of us feel this way. The, you know, less is is basically more, and then if then you do what you need to do. I mean. Ed used to joke. I told him it was okay to put a hundred cycles at a hundred dB. I never said that to him, but but it was like you know the point is is that if you need to do something, then you do it. But um, the you know the the the, the genius is picking the mice, mic, placing the mics, and then the rest of the musicians, like we all know, do pretty much the rest. Yeah. And then I will do whatever it is that makes the music. Because in the end, it's all really about the music. It's not about, oh, well, that's the greatest snare, drama, snare sound I've ever heard. 
You know, I mean, it doesn't, it's about either the song moves you or it doesn't. And it doesn't, you know, a lot of the great records don't, aren't, aren't sonic masterpieces. They, they're, they're, it's the music. Yeah. yeah. So absolutely. So I, I, I think a tendency, we have a tendency to, to get hung up, get, we get blinded by the science in a way somewhere. Yeah. And I think also in almost every session that I was ever in, that I was involved in, even if he was the engineer for the day for the strings on a record that someone else was the main engineer and someone else was producing, everybody wanted to know what Al thought because it was important. And that's not the case with a lot of people. So that that's really great. Thank you so much, Tommy. Okay. Um, so next uh, we have Chandler, sorry, blah, tongue-tied Chandler Harrod, um, who's been working with Al quite a bit recently. So um, Chandler, if you can pop your video on and then I can find you in the morass that is Zoom. And then you have the stage. Yeah, I was, uh, I was lucky enough to work with Al quite a bit the last 10 years or so. Um, he was, you know, got to know him as a friend and I'll always love him. Couple instances that stick out. The first session I ever did with Al, I forget what the record was. I'd been working at Capitol about a week and it was a mix session. And long story short, it was a corrupt hard drive and we were having trouble getting going, but Al was a gentleman through it. <laughs> and at some point he said, don't worry, you'll figure it out. It's the big leagues. And I was just like, oh no. <laughs> but uh, he, he was kind enough to let me uh, keep working with him. And uh, one of my favorite memories of him uh, working with him was the uh, Bob Dylan Shadows in the Night record. Um, Bob, you know, we had the band in there rehearsing. Everyone was getting comfortable. Bob walks in and he says, uh, you know, he's kind of standing in the middle of the room. And at some point he says, we're not going to use headphones on this record. So I was like, go take the headphones away. So we did. And uh, they rehearsed a couple of times. And after a couple of rehearsal, Al looks back at me, you know, the 24 tracks running, Pro Tools running, half half uh, track is, or half inches running. Al looks back at me and says, Chandler, I think you better go get ready with a vocal mic. I think Bob's getting ready to sing a vocal. So I sneak out into the live room and I grab the 47 and I'm just standing there while they're, you know, behind Bob while they're finishing rehearsing the one song. And Bob turns around and looks at me and goes, uh, I think I'm ready to do a vocal. Where should I go? And I said, well, you, you look comfortable here. How about here? And he goes, here is good. And when I walked back in the control room, Al just laughed and smiled at me and goes, here's good. And that's just something that's always stuck with me. And like, we would joke about it, you know, in sessions over the years, like, Oh, where do you want this? And he'd be like, here's good. And I always thought that, uh, any day that I got to work with Al, you know, it was a good day. And I always often thought to myself, here's good, you know? And, uh, he was just, he, you know, as everyone mentioned, he was an amazing engineer. The, the electrons just lined up better for him than they would anyone else. And, uh, you know, but uh, the thing I'll always remember about Al and I hope to carry forward in, in my life is to treat everyone fairly and with kindness. Because whether you were the runner at the studio or the president of the record label or Paul McCartney, he treated everyone with respect and love and kindness. And that's what I'll always value most about Al. Amazing. So good. And the, the stories of those Bob Dylan sessions, the fact that it couldn't be anything like a recording session. And yet those albums are incredible. I panic just thinking about having to do a session like that. Well, Andrew, it was Andrew, it was there, there was a, a chan oh, go ahead, Chandler. 
Oh, he's, you know, Al never said where to put the vocal. I just asked Bob and he was like, I'm comfortable here. And it was like an unspoken thing. And I was like, just put the mic in front of him and it'll be fine. <laughs> I remember when, when uh, I was doing an interview with Al about a session that uh, Al had done uh, with Frank Sinatra and Phil Ramone. And uh, uh, Al was telling me this a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he goes out to, uh, Frank is out in the room with Al had set up the whole band and then Phil had made uh, an entire kind of uh, booth for Frank to sing his vocal in. Uh, because, you know, Phil was always concerned about leakage and things like that. So um, Frank is standing out there. And uh, so they says, all right, where do you want me? And uh, um, Phil, is, uh, Phil says, well, we'd like you over there in the booth. And Frank says, I'm not going in there. Uh, I want to do it right here. And so Phil, always being not confrontational, looks to Al to say, uh, uh, you know, he, he doesn't want to use the booth. And Al says, that's fine. He can do it right here. Because <laughs> Phil was hoping for a little reinforcement. And, uh, um, and he says, no, no, that's fine. And uh, Al just uh, gave him a handheld 57. And he recorded the whole album there, uh, which went on to sell, sell about six million records or something like that. So uh, that's the thing about Al was, if, if, if the artist is comfortable right here, I don't care what we set up, we're going to make this work. Absolutely. And to, I, know, I know we're all going one at a time, but just to, to hop on to Chandler's story, because it's the same day, really. Um, Al was also a huge fan of music and artists. He wasn't the king of the mountain and everybody came to him. He loved and he was a real fan. So that day, that Bob Dylan thing, we had, the week before we had been mixing the, the, the Grammys did a, a 50th anniversary tribute to the Beatles. I don't know if you guys remember that. So a live TV show that they did and, and we were mixing that show and we were on the, you know, we had a week to do that and then we were going to go do these Bob Dylan sessions and as usual everything ran long <clears throat> and we were mixing the Paul and Ringo portion of that show we were mixing the Beatles <laughs> and and during the day you know we had to go along so suddenly we're in two rooms you know and I'm kind of finishing mixes in A and you know they're starting Bob Dylan in B and Al comes over and he just smiles he goes Steve how cool is this? We have the Beatles in one room and Bob Dylan in the other room. And it was, it came from just, it wasn't look how cool we are. It was, I'm such a fan of this. Look, isn't this great? Like what we get to do. It's, I mean, he was genuinely a fan of the music. He loved the music. It was, it was just great. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, but we've all had days like that, right? You know, no, we haven't. No, we haven't. But Thanks very much, Chandler. It was great. Um, and so I'd like to bring on somebody who doesn't get enough credit because she's usually behind the scenes, though she is quite the film star from a little movie called Sound City, but she's spent quite a bit of her life at Capitol Studios. So Paula, if you're around, you could pop your video on. I'd love to pin your video and make you large like All that. All right. Aww. What a joy to see you guys really Makes my heart feel good. Uh, 
So are we, should I go on? Yeah, you're, it's all <laughs> oh, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, hello, everyone out there. You know, I know our hearts are joined together in sorrow and loss. Uh, but today we can celebrate our beloved friend. You know, all weekend long, I'm trying to think of quotes from Al. I know you've all said a few, which is great. But when I always remember, he said, I lie when I tell my wife I'm going to work. And that's how Al, Al always described his passion for his work every day. And he was contagious, and um, he was like a nucleus in our studio. He just started things happening all the time. Um, day to day, it was just wonderful seeing him every day. He'd always come in and give me a hug and say hi, and he'd go. He'd make sure he greeted everybody. You know, he was just like a, a, gl a glass of sweet orange juice, you know. Um, but sometimes when he needed to escape from whatever frustration he was going on in, in the studio, he would come sit in my office and vent. And then until he had a laugh, and then he'd be all set. He'd get ready to go back. So how lucky was I, right? You know, talk about attracting people. Um, not only was he funny, entertaining, and such a wonderful person, but he had the greatest stories, as you know. Um, Paul McCartney even said he was encouraged to tell his own stories after working with Al on Kisses on the Bottom and Live Kisses. And Paul really fell in love with Al, too, as you know. Um, when Paul sent confirmation that he would write the forward to Al's book that Maureen was writing, all Al could write back was, wow. When, when complimented, Al was the most humble man of a few words, except when he spoke to visitors and students, he was always wanting to inspire them and make them feel just good about life, you know? Um, I sometimes talked him into some crazy uh, engineering projects because I'd get the call and I'd say, Oh, um, did you know about Al Schmidt? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, how can I get him? I said, oh, I can, you know? And he'd be right down the, the hall. <laughs> so I talked him into starring as himself in The Bachelor. Um, he had to record the couple serenading each other of a Seal song in Studio B. And at the same time, then he had to run over to Studio A to record Seal. So he would just give me a, that Al look like, what have you got me into? Um, so, but he always was a good sport. So as long as it was fun and he got paid and he was at Capitol, he was fine. You know? um, and he was such a man of style and grace. I know he set the example for all you boys. Um, he started the Wear the Tie to Work look. I found out it was on a bet, but uh, I just thought it was to bring some class back to the recording studios, Nico. Because <laughs> you all looked a lot good in your ties. So, you know, most people like to come to studios to see what kind of famous people they'll see. And of course they do. But when Al Schmidt was in, they only wanted to meet him. And he was always so gracious. He welcoming them in, taking a picture, playing a tune for them. He was always so gracious. You know, I can only say one thing. There's many stars in the sky and many stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. But our biggest superstar will always be the one and only Al Schmidt. And I love him so much. Oh, thank you. I love him so much. Um, I can't even imagine uh, work, working without him, you know? So, um, and I always said, I'm, I'm sticking around as long as Al's sticking around, but I'm going to have to stick around too to talk about him and keep his memory alive. Yeah. yeah. And I, I know from, great, from talking to him a few months ago that one of the things he hated the most about the lockdown was not getting into the studio. 
couldn't go to Capitol. And, you know, he had plenty to do and he was a happy guy, but it was it was his life. Yeah. And the last time I saw him really was with you, Nico, um, working on um, the uh, Willie Nelson. And he was the one that only one you and him were the only ones that had my big parties to celebrate my 30th year. And, uh, you know, it was funny with mask on and everything. And uh, my heart was bursting then, you know, so made it. Mm -hmm. I think some of the best times mixing with Al is, is uh, I don't think he needed me really to help him mix. I think he liked the way I drove. And so that's how I got the um, But the drive to and from the studio was the most hysterical. It just, you know, I, I had... This I mean, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I got a minimum of 30 minutes twice a day of Al ranting about anything, <laughs> you know, either shitty pitching or terrible Thai food or <laughs> can we order Japanese tomorrow? Um, mm. it, was, it was wonderful. Yeah. And yeah. then with him was the easy part. I would just look at Jenowick and laugh and figure, okay, well, one of us is going to get the menus because that's the only real hard job we have. Yeah. I made sure whenever I booked him on a project, I said, you know, there's got to be food. He's got to have his lunch. And it's there. <laughs> when we did orchestra dates, I, we're digressing, Andrew, I'm sorry, but it's, it's actually. Please do. Um, and Jenowick can back me up on this. We did, uh, for Neil Young, we did this, uh, huge orchestra thing but the the thing that that shows the person that al is when you were talking about he knows what's going on uh i got a call from from neil and and he hadn't written anything new in in like five years or something which for him is really odd and he called me up and he said i got something new and i think i just want to go in and sing it on one mic and then figure out what to do with it i'm not sure maybe an orchestra i don't know what to do but i got to do something so i said don't worry about it just show up with lyrics to Capital. When are you free? Got the dates. And I called out. And um, Al called Steve. And we set everything up. And we set up uh, 22 different instruments in the room. I told him, no, don't even bring an instrument. I don't want anything that's got any old vibe on it. So he shows up. And we're out in the studio. And, and if anybody knows any artist of, of that legacy, they're very hands-on with everything. And um, so... Neil was ready to, okay, well, let's see what this sounds like, and we'll go in and we'll do this. And I said, no, no. You see him? And he looks through the window and he sees Al. And he hadn't seen Al in years since they recorded on the beach, and uh, except for in the hallways. And I said, he's in there, which means we don't have to go in there. Matter of fact, we're not going to go in there. If it's good, he'll go like this. If it's not good, he'll go like this. means another day. Just sing these words in front of whatever sounds good. So I would just move a mic around, put it in front of wherever he was, and he would sing it. I would record it, and he'd listen and go, yeah, that was a good take. And we did the first four songs like that, three or four songs. Steve and Al in the control room, Neil out in the studio, and I would just kind of bounce around. And then we did arrangements, and we did a whole orchestra. And the day of the orchestra, the most complicated job I had was making sure that his oatmeal was there on time and hot. That was the biggest job I had because everything else was so together and sounded so good so fast, there was nothing to do. So basically, I'm a driver and I'm breakfast food. Those are my two jobs when I work with Al. that when you put the amp in the coffee area? Yeah, yeah. I got, that, in, tr I got in trouble from upstairs. 
Oh, that was people, one of the people, <laughs> people walking in and out going, it sounds like Neil Young. And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it was incredibly loud. And I walked in the control room and Al looked at me and he said, what do I do with this? And I just looked at him and I said, I don't know. You got to figure it out. That's why you're here. But I will say this about emotion and, and what Al can bring to something. And, and Andrew, you said when you heard the first chord, you just started laughing. So when we did Children of Destiny a couple years ago, which lyrically is one of the most moving songs Neil's written and one that Al really believed in, just the, mm -hmm. the lyrics behind the song, um, it was a very emotional week. We had people pass in all of our lives and all of a sudden on Friday, we're all together in the studio. And I'm, unlike Bill Schnee, I don't have access to the crying gene. It takes a lot for me to actually cry about something. So Al brings everything together and I get Neil out there and we get everything set up. And I'm, I don't know what's going on. And I just look at Steve and Steve just nods at me. Everything's fine. So I'm just standing behind him. And all of a sudden they start playing and it hit the first chorus. And I started crying like a baby. Like, I don't know how else to explain it. Mm. Um, it was the most freeing emotion ever. And it was because all this volume hit me with this arrangement, this Chris Walden arrangement and these lyrics and these people, you know, there was 60 people out there playing at the same time, all hit me at once for the first time, perfectly. And I was just standing there with this impact and nobody else on the earth got to stand in that spot. And I started crying like crazy. And um, how did you hear all that Nico without the monitors on? <laughs> <It's>, well, <laughs> when the little needles wiggle perfectly at your old Frank, it's emotional. <laughs> I get to sing. I get to sing in that because Chris was just grabbing people in the hallway and I'm like, Hey, Hey, what about me? So I got to go in and, that I was so, even though I was singing with like four of the people, I was so nervous looking at Al and you in the control room. That's about the most nervous I've ever been, you know, because I didn't want to ruin my good reputation with Al. <laughs> Nico, I'm glad that experience was nice for you because in the control room, Al was doing this. Yeah. <laughs> the guitar was so loud. <laughs> we were tearing our, I mean, that was, it was not fun. <laughs> I mean, we did it. But he had that, you know, when he put when he did the thing with his head, that was like, oh, God, what do we do now? So yeah. I'm glad you had fun that day. I had a guess. I got to cry and laugh at the same time. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> we got Neil's guitar and 47 microphones all in Omni. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we didn't need a guitar mic. Maureen here? We should hear from Maureen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Maureen, you want to? pop your video on just real quick while she's doing that just Nico, i want to point out that probably had you drive him just because there was something wrong with his phone plan because i think he used to just call eddie so <laughs> you're making me you know you're doing more for my self-esteem andrew than any single person in good world. good I'm, I'm glad i could help <laughs> so maureen droney you are the large picture on my screen Whoops, my my light just fell off my computer, guys. <laughs> All good. Didn't notice a thing. Um, wow, listening to all of this, I've made so many notes because you guys know I always I take notes all the time. And so many of you, the things that you you've said, um, 
ring a bell. And uh, I guess it's it's fitting that I'm last since I wrote the book, <laughs> uh, which was all Mike Klink's fault because he kept going around saying, somebody's got to write out Hal Schmidt's book. Somebody's, and, and I knew somebody needed to. Um, and it wasn't just about engineering. It was about how do you live a life as good as Al's? How do you, you know, how did he become this person that everybody loves and had these incredible things like being friends with Sam Cooke and recording him and the Jefferson Airplane and everybody else and, and having Bob Dylan say that he did the best vocals he'd had in years, you know? Um, I first met him when I was working with Tower of Power and it was actually, um, he was recording them at Bill Schnee's studio. Um, and that's when I first met him. And, um, you know, he was a founding member of um, of the producers and engineers wing because he, he, with Eddie, he um, was the first person to sign up for the Music Producers Guild of the Americas um, that became the producers and engineers wing. Um, and he was certainly a mentor for me. Um, I have three things. Um, one of them is a quote from Eddie. Because I, like I said, I read all this stuff down when you guys talk because I love some of the things you say and I want to be able to repeat them. And he said, Al had a hit in every decade of the record industry. <laughs> and um, the thing I, I wanted to say for me was when I was writing the book, um, the publisher really wanted it to be very specific about what Al did um, uh, technically, right? Um, and, you know, Al was Al when he was describing like how he got a reverb or something, he would tell me, you know, this little bell goes off in my head <laughs> and I know I'm there. And uh, Jenna Wick, you have talked about how um, when when sometimes there are uh, you're teaching seminars and people miss it. They miss the, what Al's teaching because they're waiting for something to happen. And he, he's been making it happen all along, like somebody else said, when he would go out and talk to the guitar player, you know, and maybe it wasn't even about where the mic was, uh, but that, that would be what was happening. And that was what was making the record. And, P and you would tell Steve, you said you'd tell people at those um, seminars that uh, pay attention right from the beginning, just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's happening in front of your eyes and you don't even see it. Um, so there I was with the publisher wanting to know things like, well, exactly where does he put the microphone on the, on the, on the guitar amp. And Al was getting, this was, I, I wrote this book over two and a half years of my weekends and holidays, spent a lot of Saturday afternoons with Al, right? Um, and uh, so one Saturday afternoon, I was telling him that the publisher wanted more technical stuff and he was getting really impatient and bored. He was like drumming his fingers on the table. And I said, you're getting bored, aren't you? And he goes, yeah, I go, well, he, he's asking things like, how far does the microphone go from the, you know, from, from the guitar amp? And he said, tell him six inches. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the truth was he couldn't explain what he did. So for the book, I had to go to Jenowick and I had to go to Nico and I had to go to Bill Smith and do little chapters on them talking about what he did and how they learned from him by watching him and sitting behind him all that time. Because what he did was, um, oh, wait a minute, I wrote it down. So, because I, I always forget. The little, you know, the little bell goes off in his head. But what he does is a combination. I'm going to cry. What he does is a combination of all of the music he heard and loved growing up, all of the sessions he's done in his life and all of the artists he's worked with. He loves it so much. And it's like really inherent with him. 
It's a physical and emotional thing that comes out of the love he has for both music and musicians. So um, my last thing is, um, and I'm not, I'm not shilling the book, although I know Al would want me to. <laughs> Um, and, and speaking of John McBride, John McBride <clears throat> buys a couple hundred books and gives them to all, to all, to all his students, you know, and, and I think that's a really good thing. So this is from, um, the back of the book from Joe Walsh, although he originally said it when Al got his star on Hollywood Boulevard. And I asked him if we could use it as a quote for the book. And he said, yes. And he said, Al knows how to record and leave the mojo in. He made so much of the music we know and love possible. When you're stumped, you can always ask yourself, what would Al Schmidt do? Oh, and by the way, uh, one of our members from uh, Detroit suggested we make t-shirts that say WWASD on them <laughs> and sell them for music cares and give the money to music cares. But what would Al Schmidt do? And then um, Joe went on to say, for a while, people used to say that Elvis sold the most records. Then it was the Eagles, Michael Jackson and you too. But nope, the truth is Al Schmidt has sold more records than anybody. So that's my other quote. And it's all very, it's very true. Be, just to be here with you guys today and hear all the stuff that you said. It's great that you're here, Maureen. Yeah, it, it's absolutely amazing. And I think what we should do now is I'm going to release the hounds and go into gallery mode. So everybody's on the screen and I think everybody can unmute. And if you got stuff to say, we'll just do it until it's either total chaos or no one wants to talk anymore. Because <laughs> normally, like I say, these go on for four or five hours. So people are used to sitting in their chairs for at least another three hours. And whatever anybody's got to say, I, I can't. It's almost like we've all said exactly the same thing, and it's just that Al is one of the greatest people we've ever known and one of the greatest engineers we've ever known. And I think the the quote about Al having a hit in every decade is actually really important because there are a lot of engineers who do amazing work in portions of their careers, and then they're still around and they're still making records, or the beginning of their careers, not a whole lot happened, and then they really hit their stride or whatever. Al was making records before anybody on this screen was born, probably kind of maybe, but certainly most of us hit records, huge records, records that you could listen to now and still be astounded by. And he did the exact same thing last year. And it's yeah. it's incredible without missing a year in between. It, Nothing I can do. Just yeah. incredible. The he only was, also, word, he was the always only current. Word, the only word I haven't heard about Al, not to interrupt, and I apologize, is that, is that great example of authenticity is that there could only ever be one Al Schmidt. He was the epitome of authenticity. Yeah, no question. Really. And I, I, I basically... Oh. <laughs> basically <laughs> muted yourself. Al's <laughs> muting me. He, he found the button. If if Al's going to haunt anybody, it's going to be Frank. Oh, I, I've got one. Um, when we were having a meeting in New York of the steering of the steering committee, I guess it was, and uh, I was booking an a Italian restaurant for the dinner after the meeting, and Al was like really worried that I didn't know enough about Italian food. Yeah, he was reassured at the restaurant, but it was like you're you're booking an Italian restaurant. Are you? You sure you know what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Oh, oh yeah. You know, watching him and Phil go back and forth. Those are some great moments. There's one part where we're all together and Phil looks around the room and says, look, between all of us here, we probably have 250 years of music recording experience. And he points at Alan and says, most of it is sitting in that chair. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, well, the Italian, the Italian restaurants were Pabonis. They were, uh, they were uh, Mar uh, Marinos. There were um, uh, um, Martinis. Uh, there was, uh, what was it, the Villa Capri? There was, uh, I mean, you know, there was, when we did the Academy Awards, we'd always have, you know, Marinos cater yeah. it, you know. Yeah. And um, even in New York, you know, he would say, well, you're going to New York, you got to go to Sistina. You got to go to Sistina. And the night I went, I was finishing a movie and uh, and uh, Tommy LaPuma is in the restaurant <laughs> with uh, Elvis Costello and Diana Krall, you know, but, but. Yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, it was one of the many pleasures of, of you know, his life, you know. We probably called them and told them to go there. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. But anyway. Paula, Paula got to see a lot of the um, Al and Phil show. Oh, uh, well, Phil, you know, Phil, I was in England and and Al actually, I was working with Rod Temperton and, and uh, in, in, in England and, and Al called me. And to tell me that Phil had passed, you know, because we had done, we had worked on, um, I'd worked with Phil a lot, uh, um, you know, from Quincy Jones to uh, the star, the Barbara Streisand Star is Born. And, you know, and he, and, and he said to me, I mean, it, you know, the idea that he would think of me at that point, you know, he said, because he said, I know how much he, he meant to you, you know, the, you know, it was just an example of what he, you know, his humanity, you know, he wanted me to know. And I, I think uh, it's as soon as possible, you know. It's easy to think that because he was in the studio all the time, that that was it, that that was the only thing he cared about. But I, I don't no. know that I ever had a conversation about making records outside the studio. I had a dinner at his house and all we talked about was the incredibly fat, sick, one-eyed cat that we had adopted. <laughs> he collected art. He knew he knew an Italian restaurant in every single city on the planet, basically. Yeah. He loved yeah. to eat. He loved to talk. He loved to be with people. And his stories about all the amazing artists he would work with were about them as people and the dinners they went to and the stories that happened. It was never, you know, boy, when I made that record, wasn't I awesome. It, nothing to uh, do with that yeah. at all. No, 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 no. Well, one one Oscar show we were doing, uh, and the, that was the year that Queen was was nominated, and they had all these these um, uh, dancers uh, do this. It was like a little segment, and and Al walks in with uh, just at the moment where we're looking at the video where they're they're saying the Queen. Al walks in with Queen Latifah, <laughs> and I went and I said. Your Majesty, <laughs> you, know, you know, and 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 she came up and gave me a big hug. You know, there was there was all these kind of things that that were just spontaneous and and beautiful. You know, I was like, it was pretty, 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 uh, pretty amazing. I think. You know. I got a letter that um, uh, from Neil uh, Young that I should probably read. It's very short. Um, but he couldn't be here. He wanted to be here because they were good buddies. 
One of our old friends, a record maker for the ages, is no longer with us. His masterful music lives on. The great Al Schmidt has passed away. Al was a good friend for many, many years, and his gift for recording was recognized around the world. Al taught us so much, and I am so happy that just a couple days ago, I got a chance to tell him again how great his influence is and how much I love what he did for my music. From On the Beach to Storytone to Children of Destiny, Al was right there with me. Thanks so much, Al, for your kindness, your smile, your ties, and your great talent. You make us all better. Love and peace, Neil. So there. I kind of feel like we ought to leave it there. I, I don't know what there is to add. So hopefully everybody had time to queue up Unforgettable. Um, I'm going to switch the stream to a picture of Al that Paula took that I think sums him up. He's smiling and he's smoking a cigar and wearing a tie. I don't know what else you need to know. So thank you so much for being here, everybody. Thanks, everybody who was watching. And this will not be the last tribute to Al Schmidt, but hopefully this helps everybody start to get through it. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Love everybody. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you got at least a small sense of what a fantastic human being as well as a fantastic engineer Al Schmidt was. Join me next week when I'll be continuing my conversation with the one and only Bob Clearmountain.